Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What's good, everybody? It's our favorite time of the year here at the Black Effect. We're headed down to Atlanta for the 2024 Black Effect Podcast Festival, and we're not going alone. Nissan is back as our partner, and they're continuing their Pitch Your Podcast Lounge at the festival, where you'll have the opportunity to pitch your podcast idea live and share it with the Black Effect team. So get those podcast ideas ready. And remember, you can count on Nissan to dial up the thrill in your adventures, no matter where life takes you. Visit blackeffect.com slash podcast festival for more details. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the driving to work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Got my PrevNAR 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk. Get vaccinated. But but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. That's how we own it! What's up, family? It's your girl, Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, Jenner. And we are your hosts of Street Politicians, the, the place, place where the streets, streets and, and politics, politics meet. meet. What's going on, my son, Lennon? You know me, I am blessed and highly favored doing God's work. Sure are. I saw you just a couple of days ago out with the kids in the school, greeting them. Were, were you guys greeting them when they went in or out? In? We were greeting them going in. Oh, yeah. okay, that's cool. Amazing day. Shout out to PS197 in Harlem. Shout out to Principal Spin who invited me. It's such a it was such a dope event, right? And I think it's like I said, I think it should be something that's implemented all around the city. Like, you know, I think just seeing that presence of men in the school, greeting, you know, just showing that 
their presence, like, it's because it's so absent. It's not something that's normal, but it should be normal, right? Like, I felt good watching these kids. They seen us. They, excuse me, they had music playing. We hugged some of them. We gave them high fives. It was just an energy, you know, and doing that, like, once a month. Yeah, you're giving them a vibe. It's like a yeah, vibe. It's a vibe. It's in, it, it, you, it, the school feels protected, right? You feel you feel connected to the school. The community, the brothers come in our community, start paying attention. You know, it makes... People who would seek to do anything negative around that look from somewhere else to go because they realize there's a presence around there that's not going, you know, tolerated. So I think it's something that, you know, we should look for, you know, to get done in schools all around the city. Well, I think two things. One, that's what I was talking about, you know, in, in reference to the interview, um, excuse me, the conversation we had last week on the white man fighting the kid or, you know, him not fighting the kid, beating up a child because he brought his kid to fight another child, a white kid against a black child. And then, of course, when the black kid got the best of his child, he got frustrated, jumped in and put his hands on the kid, which he shouldn't have. And that was my whole point about fathers, you know, being present. I think it will really, really help us. And you don't have to be someone's biological parent to show up and present the fatherhood that we need in communities. So I think that's great. And I think the second point is that the culture is not going to just change on its own. We literally have to force a shift by actively doing things, whether it's in music, art, entertainment, you know, just everyday life, everything we do in education, everywhere we go and everything we do, even the what we eat, what we're feeding ourselves, what we're saying on social media, how we're presenting in every space, we have to be intentional about shifting this culture because people have gotten really comfortable for the last two years, three years with stupid shit. I keep saying stupid shit is the is my Type, what's that's my uh, what do you call it term that I'm using for so many things that's going on right now, and I don't think it's going to just change. We've got to make it change. Yeah, we got to be intentional. I, you know, I, I coined the frame. The, I've coined the phrase coward culture. And, and coward culture and stupid shit. That's yeah. our, that's unto the way now. Street politicians has two phrases that you can depend on us to say. Coward culture by my son Lennon and stupid shit by Tamika Mallory. Yeah, and, and that's what it is, man. So that's shout cool. out to the brothers. Shout out to Derek. Shout out to Billy. All the, all the other brothers who came out, you know, and, and represented, man. It was a dope event. Oh, that I love it. I love it. So um, while you all were out there at the school with the young people, the the uh, attorney general of New York, uh, Letitia Jane, Letitia James, Tisha, our sister, Letitia, as we call her, she did a thing which was to bring charges against, uh, you know, Donald Trump and not just him, his kids. Are in the in in the um, the charges? They are all a part of the case. And you know, I listened to the press conference, which is not something that I would generally do because I'm so over Trump. Because I don't really think that it will um, result in anything seriously happening to him. Um, But you know, maybe a black woman will get it done. Um, But you know. 
as I was listening to what he did in terms of inflating his income, um, you know, claiming to have more money and for his properties to be evaluated at higher prices. So no matter what, if the auditors and the appraisers said $200 million when the paperwork was filed or when they applied for loans, it was at 500, 550. I'm talking about not like $20, $30, even a hundred million. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that he was inflating his numbers per the uh, charges and the, the, that she's put forward. And of course, his children running the companies in order for him to be able to do that, they would have to be a part of it. Um, running the companies, the buildings, all the things. And even even the size of his apartment at Trump Towers was like, say, 11,000 square feet or no, 1,100 square feet or something, some number like that. And instead, I think they may have, um, you know, submitted paperwork that said it was like 50 or some, you know, some crazy, crazy, crazy numbers. Don't quote me on the numbers. Make sure you read the article. But the point is that he what they were doing was just so blatant. Right. And and I and, and at one point I was listening. I'm like, damn, like this is really crazy. Like somebody needs to go to jail. And then I realized the brother learned this stuff from his daddy. This is what and, I'm trying to say. This is like who, like how we need to, it's some other people that need to this, go down because yeah. they've been doing this. This is, he, this is a strategy. They've been doing this. Black man ain't going to over say, black man going to say, I'm going to put about an extra 10 feet or so, 20 feet, right? I'm going to put about an extra thousand, a couple dollars on it. These niggas, is, look, this is what I'm saying. We got some, we doing it wrong, man. No, we, we not. We ain't That's even stealing right. No, listen, what I'm trying to tell you, man. We ain't even stealing right. The, 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 the crime that we do don't even make sense. These niggas just figure out how to make 200 million and we steal a couple of thousand, 2,000, maybe 50, 60. These niggas, hundreds of millions. And the benefit that they received is that if they inflate the numbers, it puts them in a different tax bracket and they're going to pay all of these allotments and you know and, and breaks tax breaks and and they get all of these benefits of having more because that's how capitalism works the more you have the less you have to pay in taxes and the more benefits and perks you get from the system so it's crazy we'll see what happens you know i all i know is i pray for uh for the attorney the ag's life and I hope that she is well protected. Um, and, you know, there have been times and it's you know, you know, there's certainly no um, secret about it. But there have been times when I've been saying, Tish, I don't like, you know, what you're doing, you know, and we've challenged her on many issues. And so it's not so much that um, I think that she, you know, it, it, well, let's put it this way. This political space is very, very complicated. It's so many different complications. And speaking of that, that goes to our next subject. But it's very complicated. But I, I also understand that certain things that you have to do or that you choose to do as an elected official and particularly a Black elected official, it takes courage because you literally get yourself killed Anything you have going on, if Pookie and your family got some stuff going on, it's going to become your problem. 
um, you know, it can really, it can, you can really be damaged in a lot of ways for trying to stand up against the system. So, you know, I shout out to her for that. And hopefully something comes out of it because Trump is just running wild and no one is doing anything about it. But then I hope after she finishes with Trump that she moves on to some other landlords in New York uh, who are doing just the same and some other millionaires. Uh, So speaking of politics, Hurricane Fiona in Puerto Rico is like crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. God bless the people. Puerto Rico, very similar to Haiti. It's just like you. It doesn't it's stop. One after another, it's like- it doesn't stop. It just keeps coming. And then you have at the simultaneously the water crisis in Jackson, which Jackson is not alone. Even in Newark, New Jersey, there have been reports of water issues and there are other states and cities across the country that have issues with water. Um, but Jackson is is in the center of attention right now. We um, ship five thousand dollars. I mean, yeah, five thousand dollars worth of water to Jackson State University. Um, we are involved in some events. Just actually attended an event uh, to support the people of Jackson. And the thing I, I what comes to my mind is how much we as all kinds of people, not just black people, but a lot of different people who don't pay attention to the news and this and that, or people who feel like politics is too much. We really don't understand, as we've talked about on the show many times, and we had a show where we talked about it with uh, Tesla and Figaro of Straight Shot No Chaser, everything is political. Water is political. How you get hurricanes and how they hit and what type of damage happens and then what they do immediately afterwards to try to uh, preserve lives, that's political. And where you are located in the in the country, where you are uh, prioritized on the list of uh, the, the, the political, uh, whatever, political, political priorities, basically, right? which means you got money or you've got something that benefits the politicians, not just they're going to take care of your community because they should. It doesn't work like that. Unfortunately, there's got to be something, either you're voting, you're, you're, you're investing by giving donations. There's got to be something you making noise, you protesting, you got to be leaned in, in order to get, the services that you need from this political system. So to sit outside of it and a hurricane hits and you want to make sure that your community is is protected, you better be on the ground busting ass telling them that you want the resources necessary because when hurricane, there's certain things that need to be done to protect your community so that when a hurricane hits, it doesn't damage as much as you know, from an infrastructure perspective, as much as, as it could. And then of course, Things like water, making sure you have clean water, clean pipes like Flint, Michigan. All of that is political because people are making decisions about it. I have to. And, you know, we, and that's what I'm saying. People that are trying to circumvent or act like the process, they don't want to be involved in. Like if you ain't at the table, you're on the menu, man. You know, so when we look at these situations and we constantly see the same areas, you know, I know it's geographical. Right. You can't stop that. You know, you can't really stop that. But there has to be some something that we can do from a governmental perspective that makes it 
okay, since we already know the geographical, you know, situation that they're dealing with and knowing that they're highly likely to deal with these hurricanes and these tropical storms, what what systems are we going to set in place to be able to help them, to, to prevent, to do things that, you know, that we're already, that we ain't behind the eight ball and people are losing their lives and losing their homes and losing their property so rapidly and we, we don't have anything set up. So I think we got to look into that. I think people have to be very intentional. I think all of those cities and states and countries who, who live in those areas that are prone to deal with those mass destructions from hurricanes and, and tropical storms should have things in place. And I always say that, I'm like, why the same places keep getting hit and having the same, you know- Same devastating be- impact. Yeah, it's it's like same, Haiti. It's like, like, it's- how can, we already know that Haiti has, that the uh, earthquakes and stuff happen there, right? We know that. We it's know insane. that there's many yeah. environmental challenges. And we know why that Haiti is being punished, so. There's well, we know that. I mean, that's a whole other thing. But I'm just saying, again, it's political. It's who you have in office. It's your relationship to America, unfortunately, and mm-hmm. other uh, very powerful nations around the world. It's so much that's involved with it. And you definitely have to understand the politics of how even in New Orleans, if you notice, Black people live in lower um, uh, what do they they call it something? I have to make sure that that we uh, talk about this again. People who have more resources, they live higher up. So when the storms come, it impacts the people living in the lower uh, belly of the the of Louisiana and of of New Orleans. So this is very it's geographical, but it's also de- designed by. Um, you know, I guess I, I, we, we just have to say racism because racism is what puts us in certain communities and sort of keeps us in poverty and in areas that we can't necessarily get out of. And they haven't done anything in terms of making sure. Well, I mean, there's been some infrastructure stuff done with the levees, but it clearly hasn't been enough. So anyway, it's all political. Every all political. Yeah. You do politics or politics or do you? That's right. You saw the Woman King, and I was all in an uproar about people online suggesting it be boycotted. And so we've been trying to figure out, first of all, what are they talking? Because I I don't, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say everybody that's talking is wrong. Because, you know, sometimes you can get different perspectives. But we did our little bit of research. We discussed it. They said, one, too many feminine men that the male characters were feminized. Did you see that? I seen one, one guy. You saw one man, right? But did you see, but the question I asked was it said, the the male characters with an S were feminized. Did you feel that there was a lot? I I didn't agree with that. Okay. It was, it was, I I felt like they were just men and women. That's me, but you know, whatever. Thought they were masculine women. How about that? It's not the, anyway. Next thing was women and men were pitted against one another. I never saw that. And then, then they talked about the history. So the history component is important, right? Because there are some people who did, just because it's coming out of Hollywood, they don't want them to have anything to do with it because they don't trust the narratives 
um, about, you know, stories about our people. But there are different debates on the history. And we're going to talk about the specifics of it during the, the interview that we're doing with our guests. But from I want to know, did, you know, because I thought maybe I was tripping. And the question that I'm asking, are we sabotaging? Because it was another movie. What was the name of the other movie that they were talking about? Uh, boycott. What was Harriet. the name? Harriet. Harriet. Dark skin characters, dark skin black women characters. And Viola Davis has been talking about that. So they were saying that then I figured, am I crazy? But I wanted you and everybody else on our team to see it and give your feedback. And no one said this film should be boycotted. No, I don't I don't see any reason. I didn't see a reason for Harriet to be boycotted. You know, I think people are people are, are so gun hole on trying to tear things down like that's what it is for me like historical there are different historical facts there and, and but when we have movies you know there's a level of entertainment that you add there are levels of things there will be historical facts is based on history and there'll be some things that, that don't completely agree with the historical facts that we know and we understand that so you should be able to take take the history the history and you mix it with the entertainment to come up with a movie. And I think people looking for a movie to be to the T historically correct is just stupid, right? So what we wanna do, we wanna ask the question, do we think it's sabotage or do we think it is reasonable critique? We want you to comment in the section, let us know what do you think? When Did you see the movie? Did you see Harriet? Are you, are we, are you listening and paying attention? Cause it seems only like she said, a lot of the movies with dark-skinned women are heroes and being amplified. You know, it seems to have the same level of critique. So are we too critical? Are we overly critical? Are we looking to just sabotage everything that happens that glorifies and amplifies the Black women in America and in, in, in our entertainment and our historical context when they meet? Or are we doing it too much? Or is it reasonable? Give us your, give us your thoughts on it. Well, I'm sure our guest today has something to say about it, so we'll ask him. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something we care deeply about here at Black Tech Green Money. State Farm Insurance also cares about the growth of black communities. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help provide financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. We want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. It also requires active sponsorship of programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, along with funding programs like Project Ready, a national urban league program committed to educational achievement of black and brown youth that has awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to date. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, everyone. I am so excited. The Black Effect is live. This April 27th, the 2024 Black Effect Podcast Festival is headed to Atlanta's very own Pullman Yards. Last year was incredible, and this year will be even more thrilling, especially with Nissan coming back along for the ride. 
Nissan is returning with some empowering activations to support Black excellence in the STEAM fields. Have a podcast idea you've been eager to share with the culture? Well, Nissan is back with a Pitch Your Podcast Lounge. You'll have the chance to record your podcast idea and have it shared with a Black Effect podcast network team. But that's not all. Nissan is taking the stage to spotlight some of the HBCU scholars from their own Thrill of Possibility Summit, Nissan's action-packed weekend of community building, mentorship, and professional development for HBCU scholars pursuing professions in STEAM. The Black Effect Podcast Festival is the event to be at. You won't want to miss this because no matter where life takes you, Nissan will dial up the thrill of your adventures. Visit blackeffect.com forward slash podcast festival for more details. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Got my PrevNAR 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us, wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic, and at higher risk, get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar 20. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. It's like, take me back to Ghana. Oh, my Lord. The experience (laughs) of what we saw and what we did while we were there in Ghana. Wow, wow, wow. And one of the, and, and my song, we have talked so much about how one of the most impactful moments was having an opportunity to meet our guest that is joining us today. And that is Rabbi Kohen Nathania Halivi. Oh my, thank you so much for joining Street Politicians today. Thank you, man. Thank you for inviting me. And I look forward to our discussion and exchange today. Yes. Now you... Um, are a rabbi and a priest. You yes. are a visual artist. You're an art teacher. You're a community leader. You have a master's in theology and arts education. You you got certificates 
so many, I can't even name a public speaker, <laughs> a historian. I think you are, are you an anthropologist as well? Yes, I have, um, you know, I'm into anthropology, received my certificate in that, been doing that for many years. Um, well, I've been in this struggle since um, for 50, this year's 49 years, I can say. Wow. Um, from being at Savannah State College. So that's with all of those lineup of uh, um, certificates and experience and all that comes from. Wow. And again, just uh, an, an overall historian and educator. Um, and you, when, when, when we uh, visited with you and we had our tour of uh, the slave dungeons, I heard something in your voice and, I, and it, it, it made me say, where are you from? You know, because I could I could tell it wasn't necessarily there. It was something that was real familiar to me. And being someone yeah. who lives, you know, sort of like the North Bronx and I'm, I'm I'm well, I'm from Harlem, but I've been in the North Bronx for a long time. I knew that sound. And you said Mount yeah. Vernon. And I'm like, oh, my God, you must know my pastor, Dr. W. Franklin Richardson, who I eventually talked to about you. And he's like, that's my brother. And, you know, yeah. that made it even closer to home for us to find out that you are actually from New York, but living in Ghana. And I guess the first question that my son and I discussed that we wanted to ask you is how does a man find himself first in Mount Vernon and then living in Ghana and educating people there? Well, yeah, that's a big question. You know, um, we let me announce that right now we have a group of 350 African-American educators in Ghana right now in Cape Coast. Mm -hmm. And these are all um, university and college presidents. And they're here to study how they can introduce African-centered education into the curriculums of our black school system in America. Mm -hmm. And so the phenomena of our people reconnecting with Mother Africa is great. And when I was in the symposium with them two days ago, they asked me that same question. And they also asked me, how did I, you know, take up this way of life? And how did I become a Pan-Africanist and get involved in all the things I've been involved with? And I took it back to my root. I told them I was born in Mount Vernon, New York. And um, I was writing a chapter on some of you know, the early parts of my life. And I named that chapter when I was young. My mother took me to church and my father took me to Harlem. So that's the name of the chapter. So I got both those um, spans. My mother was very deep and spiritual into the church. My father was deep in terms of the Harlemites, the Harlem socialite and all of that. And I was on those street corners in Harlem every weekend, listening to the street corner nationalists and preachers talking about African history and African people where you couldn't get that kind of knowledge anywhere. And of course, for me, it wasn't only knowledge, it was inspiration. So that inspiration came um, and I got committed when I was at Savannah State College in Savannah, Georgia, when I left Mount Vernon High School and went to Savannah State um, to study art education. And then I say I got my calling then. I wanted to be a part of the Black movement. I wanted to be a part of those who made a difference in all people's lives and the conditions that we were living in, the better condition of people of African descent. So I brought that back up to Mount Vernon from Georgia and started the Bereshit Cultural Institute. And um, we started that institute to educate young black children in the history of who they were as black people. I was really upset when I went to school and realized I spent all that time in high school, elementary school, and no significant knowledge about African people was transmitted to us through those curriculums. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make sure that um, that happened to our children 
at a young age and at their foundation level that we would put into them who it is that they are as a people. And so that inspiration spurned another uh, uh, inspiration. And that was, I actually got tired of just reading about Africa um, through textbooks and um, displaying my Africanness through um, cliches and posters and uh, making sure I had the latest edition of the latest book on my bookshelf to show that I had read it. But I wanted a real experience with Africa. And so I made my first trip in 1987. And when I made that trip, it was like a spiritual revelation that I had to do this. This was home. It took me seven years and 13 trips before I finally migrated here in 1994. And so in 1994, I had been part of all the marches that we participated in after the murder of Eleanor Bumper, the 78-year-old grandmother in her home in New York City, uh, after the uh, murder of Michael Stewart for painting graffiti in the subways. Um, as, I, as you read, I'm a community activist. We, re- we led protests and Westchester protests and Brooklyn protests in Manhattan. And I got tired of the redundancy. And I said, there has to be an alternative. So I decided I wanted to move to Africa to try to carve out some alternative options that we would have. So it wouldn't be like we're animals trapped in a, in a, on a street corner or trapped in a ghetto or trapped in a circumstance where we didn't have options. So um, I decided to move to Africa and bring my activism here since I realized that we had so many strong activists in the United States of America and elsewhere, but we needed to build bridges. And I was in that position, had made contacts, built networks where I can come to Mother Africa and try to use my experience in America in the movement to bring it to Africa so we can build bridges and make this one struggle for African people, whether we're in Africa, whether we're in the Americas, or whether whether it is that we are in this world where we're suffering, we have to join our struggle together so that we can come up with remedies, how we can stop the suffering, stop the dissension, and start with the ascension of African people returning to their proper place, you know, in this global being respected and our dignity restored by ourselves. Mm, amen. So, you know, first of all, I just want to say thank you. You, you know, meeting you was life-changing. You know, that... Mm. The tour that you gave us, you know, I couldn't hold back tears. As you described, went down in those dungeons, which they call castles, and and, and you made yes. us refer to them as dungeons. You know, just and, and yes. put it in the real perspective of what happened. You know, and it was a life changing experience. And I remember first seeing you online, you know, with a lot of our colleagues mm-hmm. and during the, the year of return and hearing your voice and hearing, and everybody came and said, you have to go on this tour with this man. And I just want to say thank you because it's opened my eyes. It's given me a different level of purpose in which the way that I show up and the way that I move, you know, understanding what our people went through just for me to just still be alive, you know? So I just want to thank you for that. Well, you're quite welcome, my brother. It was my pleasure. And that's part of what I'm here for, you know, to help build that bridge and make that experience real when we experience it. Yes, sir. And, and I met being in Mount Vernon. I did. They had a, a concert, a mini concert day a few weeks ago in which I met your son and your daughter and took a picture with them. You know, oh, so, all right. Yeah. They were really cool. It was that's like, oh, you were a father in Africa. So I just wanted to say that. But, you know, the, the work that you do is not something that's known, right? The, the way that you're yes. so invested in our history, in what it is that we come from, in educating, where did that 
Where did that thirst come from? How long, how did you know that this is what you wanted to do? Well, I take it um, nothing less than um, a very spiritual um, uh, commitment that I have and that I serve religiously. It's not a religion, but it's something I do religiously in terms of it's an internal commitment. I feel it's a calling. I come out of the era when I saw, you know, and heard Omega Evers assassinated in my era, you know, um, Malcolm X assassinated in my era, you know, the family of Malcolm X, you know, ultimately ended up living in Mount Vernon. Um, Martin Luther King murdered. I saw Black Panther officers, you know, blown up. And I just felt that the reason why America is strong today or any nation is strong today is because of their continuity. They remember their forefathers, their founding fathers, their heroes and their sheroes, you know, that lived for them, was prepared to die for them. And the only honor that we can give to them is by carrying on the legacy. And it's through continuity. It's not by starting something over new again and acting like because we're on the scene, it started. But it's about where did they leave off? It's like when you march out with a regiment, a military regiment, and before you go into battle, there's a flag bearer. And your captain or your commander usually asks, if this flag should fall to the ground, who's going to pick it up next? And it was a matter of who's going to pick up that flag. When we lose one leader, another leader has to step up. It's not just about a leader either. You know, it's about leaders. It's about all of us doing whatever we have in our capacity, uh, recognizing whatever gift that it is that we have. And how do we join those gifts together to make a solid movement? And so I realized early as an artist that I first started out with um, lending my art talent to the street corner murals, um, painting the, um, the murals and the pictures of our heroes, when Malcolm and King and all of them were um, taken out of the flower of their life. You know, many of us artists joined in and painting their portraits in our community, making for young people still saw, you know, Malcolm still saw King, still saw Mega Evers, still saw Black Panthers struck, um, you know, leaders. And um, so images were very important. And then I transferred that even on another level, you know, on a spiritual level. I even started painting, you know, the patriarchs of, of the of the Bible, you know, in blackface, so the original form that they belonged in, um, that we would have positive images around us. And that was the artistic part of me. But it was always that passion in me um, that our race and our forebearers, our forefathers and foremothers were worth investing in and worth living for. And so, because I saw at an early age our martyrs, there was an old man that said to me when I began my journey, he said, son, you know, um, the martyrs have their time, but don't try to just say that you will die for this cause. What we need is people who will live for this cause. Mm -hmm. So live for this cause. We've had bloodshed already, but make a difference by living for it. Make this your life. Make this your passion. Make this your breath. Um, make this the very substance of your being. So it wasn't easy to travel to Africa, um, you know, in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. You know, Kwame Nkrumah was gone. Sekou Touré was gone. His Imperial Majesty, Ali Selassie, was gone. Uh, Patrice Lumumba was gone. A lot of the progressive African leaders who were the ones chosen to make Africa different, they were wiped out by a cynical system that didn't want to see Africa transform. They didn't want Africa to be able to enjoy the fruits of our independence labor. They still wanted to keep Africa um, dependent. A lot of our early leaders who sought to go back to Africa at that time came into that turmoil and had to return back to the U.S. But still, we had a legacy here. Still, we had footprints in the ground here. We have W.E.B. Du Bois' tomb is here. He was buried here. His wife, Shirley Graham Du Bois, 
you know, stayed here all the way up until Nkrumah's overthrow. Uh, we had Richard Wright, the author. Um, we had uh, Maya Angelou, who lived here for a number of years, all the way up until Nkrumah's overthrow. We had people like Martin Luther King, um, um, Muhammad Ali. Um, we had uh, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. We had so many prominent African-American figures um, uh, intellectuals, politicians, performers, academians, and plain workers who came here to build Ghana as a new African nation. That's why Ghana has a black star in her flag, because it was meant to be a part of the diaspora. So that's how I linked up with Ghana versus Ethiopia or Liberia, which were also common at that time. You know, so a lot of people used to look towards Ethiopia, they look towards Liberia, but because of the unrest in those places, Although Ghana had some instability, it was more stable of the three who were used to receiving people from the diaspora. And having studied that history and knowing that history, I heard the call of the ancestors um, calling me back to Ghana so we can finish the dream because it had been deferred, it had been derailed, it had been thrown off track. And when you get lost on a journey, the first thing you try to do is identify where did you make that wrong turn or how did you get off track and get back to that point and continue the journey to where you wanna go in your destiny. Amen. Wow, I mean, I know you've already said all the things that needs to be said about this, but I have to ask you very directly, how important yeah. do you think it is for uh, for us as uh, Af Africans in America to visit different places in Africa and especially Ghana and to make sure that our children have an opportunity to, to get direct access, not just books, but, you know, we take vacations. See, I, I've been having that conversation with people since we've been back. Oh, we can't get there. It's too expensive. Uh, it's this, it's too far, but then they go to Hawaii, which, you know, obviously is in America, but Absolutely. still they take yes. that long trip. They pay that money to go to Hawaii. Or, and then they go, of course, to, to places out of the country. And, it, and, and I believe that there was a very deliberate um, and intentional attempt to make us stay away from visiting Africa by making people feel like, it would be dangerous. It's dirty. It's you're not, you know, all the things, the negative things. But how Absolutely. important do you think it is now for people to bring their children and families to the continent? I think it is extremely important. It's probably one of the most important decisions that you can make in your life and make for your children or uh, any of your family members. This is a, something that completes us in a way that we don't even know or can't anticipate. Um, it's not a matter of coming to live to Africa or relocate to Africa, but it is a matter of reconnecting to Africa. We have to remember that within um, the traumatic experience um, of having been snatched and torn away from Mother Africa was not natural. Um, those of us who are in the Americas by virtue of North Atlantic slave trade are here as a, as, as a, and by virtue of the most traumatic experience that any class of human beings have ever experienced over an extended amount of time so consistently and so conspiratorially from so many different nations that have been a part of that conspiracy and have benefited from it. So in our DNA, there's still some trauma and we don't know within ourselves how remedial it is for us to come back to the continent and just walk on that soil, come back on that continent and have the voice of our ancestors embrace us, envelop us, to even live within the concepts of, of, the, of an African world. Something happened to us 
that we don't live in our conscious mind with. It registers in our subconscious mind. And as I said, in our DNA. Mm -hmm. And it's only when you touch base back on that soil that that returns back to you. There's a level of empowerment that doesn't come academically. It doesn't come intellectually. It comes to your soul. And, you know, we used to use that term uh, in the 60s and the 70s, soul brother, soul sister. What is a part of our soul that remains in Africa? And then the other part of that, people have tried to make Africa so distant you know, from us, tried to make us ashamed of Africa. And the only way we can get rid of that shame is to confront it, to come back here and feel the reality that this is where we come from. Whether we choose to come back here or not, we must never neglect to identify with it. Um, we, I know that I come up in a generation in the U.S. where right after World War II, uh, people used to laugh at Japanese products. They used to call them just Japs. Watches didn't work. Radios didn't work. People made fun of, I said, Japanese people. But Japan rebuilt herself. And in rebuilding herself, she never denied um, who it is that she was. And her people kept faith in her. And so, therefore, when Japan became strong again, Japanese people are respected again all over the world. Same thing with Chinese people. People saw them as people that do your laundry, but make well-starched shirts and sheets, or either, you know, good Chinese food. Um, people laughed at them. But now that China... Um, through its diaspora has been made strong because this diaspora has used its exposure to technology that they came in contact with in the West to share that technology back home. And now China actually is vying for the most powerful nation in the world. And so likewise, Africa will never realize her strength until African people make her strong. And African people will never realize their strength, nor be respected, nor have their dignity restored until Africa's dignity is restored. People think Africans are inferior because they think Africa is inferior. People mm. disrespect Africans because they disrespect Africa. I don't care what we have in terms of our degrees. If we are a PhD and you stand next to any other nationality, they assume that you are inferior until you prove your equalness, your equality, or your superiority. But we must always prove ourselves. And that's because of the stigma on Mother Africa. So we have a duty to help to restore the dignity of Africa so that African people, no matter where we walk out on this globe, will have our dignity restored. And that can only hap happen when your mother is respected. And Africa is our mother. And we must protect our mother, protect our house. And that way we protect ourselves and shield ourselves. So I promote that strongly. Every African child deserves to visit Africa, wherever it is that you go, and walk on African soil, be amongst African people, see yourselves on billboards, see yourself at the center of activity and the center of attraction, see yourself in an African world where we're empowered. No matter what our state is, no matter what our challenges are, we still have worlds that we have built and maintained in Mother Africa, and every African deserves to experience that. Amen. I'm going to buy my ticket right now. Yeah, right listen, now. Man, listen, that right there is that's supposed to be a commercial, man. But um like, uh, like I said, you know, I was very emotional inside of the slave dungeons. I couldn't hold back tears, you know. Yes. And, and, and you and you told us a lot about the history, you know, told us about a lot of people who you've given this tour to. And I remember you you told us about when you brought the Obamas and you did the tour with them. And and you said and you told me you told us how they were pretty much cool until one point that you know you've seen that you know President Obama was fighting back tears at one point. And I just want to well, know actually, yes. 
you know what it was actually when I when I was doing I shared with you that the tour operator, the young man, Esso uh, Blankston, that gave him the tour was somebody that I worked with through the years and we were giving him uh, mentorship and tutelage the night before the Obamas came. So he made sure that he hit the proper points. And so when that experience is over, we were right there. So he shared every second and every moment of that experience. But yes, it was the point where it was reported that, of course, the presidents, the first lady and her mother and her daughters, they felt and showed some emotions throughout that tour. And it was that it was that the president had pretty much composed himself. But it was when he came out of the male dungeon and it was said to him that the this was the church, the Anglican church that was up, up upstairs or right up on top of the male dungeon that he showed, you know, the most emotions he had showed on that trip and actually kind of buckled a little bit there. Um, to see, to think about the irony that mm. people could worship above the male dungeon with human beings up to a minimum of a thousand and many times up to a thousand five hundred you know, males being kept incarcerated, you know, in those dungeons with their moaning, their groaning, all the crying, the tears and whatever else that you could actually be holding church upstairs from there. That was, and that, that, that really touched me, man. And so I'm just trying to figure out how do you, you know, I know it's been a lot, but it must be, do you relive those emotions? Do, do, do you find yourself getting emotional or have you become somewhat numb to it as you continue to do the tour? Do you find yourself reliving those emotions with the people that you're giving the tour? Yeah, I do. I do find myself reliving it. You know, um, I, I treat every tour sacred and I mm -hmm. take none of them for granted. I don't remove myself from the experience of what our ancestors went through. And that is, that's what helps me convey to those who are on um, that pilgrimage or that tour at that time, feel it, because I feel it. There's not a single time that I can go there and go through that exercise and not conduit the spirit of our ancestors. And that's what I see it as. I see it as a ritual that I actually perform Anytime that I'm going into that, not a ritual per se, but it is a ritual. I meditate strongly and I ask that the spirit of the almighty and the spirit of our ancestors convey through me what that person needs to experience or that group needs to experience for that time. There are mechanical things that are the same in terms of the historical content, the historical facts, um, the, the historical logistics, but the spirit component of it is I try to tune into every person, every client that I go through there with so that their spirit, their experience is an enriched one and not just part of some um, ritual that you can get off of a baller plate. Like, you know, right. oh, I've seen that. I've done that before. So even when people repeat the tour, they tell me they, they felt something different. They heard something different mm -hmm. and um, they're glad they even repeated it. So it never gets redundant for me. So it never becomes redundant for the people that I'm serving at that time. Well, I tell you what was emotional for me. I watched white folks, Europeans or and others walking around, taking pictures, smiling, laughing, you know, having a, a good old time. And I, I struggled with that, Rabbi. I'm, I, you know, I yes, can't lie absolutely. to you. It, 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 I struggled with it. And as we rode home or back to the hotel, it, it was, yeah. it, it, you know, it was hitting and then when we got back to the hotel, because so many people are obviously doing big business in Ghana and it also has become yes. a vacation spot, there were white sure. people in the lobby enjoying their martinis and they were laughing and they were talking. 
And it really, really struck a nerve with me that I'm not sure that they felt because coming back, we were quiet. You know, we didn't even yeah. have words to describe. Right. What we I just can see that's the way y'all concluded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and the other young man who was with us, our uh, our brother and the fourth coach, co-founder of Until Freedom, attorney Angelo Pinto, he was with us. He just kind of blurted mm-hmm. out in the car, we are not outraged enough. We're not outraged mm-hmm. enough. And I don't believe that that outrage should just be ours. I had to reconcile with myself. And I said after, um, you know, when when we did our show immediately following, this is not just African history. It's European history also. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I just wanted you to know I was it hit me hard to see white people like just normal. Celebrating. Sure. Well, you let me share this, you know, first of all, I don't do this tour for white people. I do it for all people, but they should have this experience. Mm -hmm. What I do do, I do deprogramming for them after they've gone through it. I've been in sessions where we've discussed it so I can really penetrate into them to let them know the role they played in this and where we find the relationships today human relationships today have been seriously damaged because of the whole white supremacist theory, which was manufactured out of that experience. Mm. Because as you know, and you remember when I started the tour and I read, and I, I gave the story of Mansa Musa, the condition of West Africa, you know, 700 years ago versus Europe, um, even coming down further to 500 years ago versus um, Europe and what has happened in that gap. And so the, the theory of white supremacy having been manufactured out of that period and we've been the victims of it and other people are victims, they don't see it that way. They see themselves as just benefactors. But um, in that respect, yes, they need to hear this, but I don't do those joint tours um, through the dungeons because the dynamics are too much and our people deserve to have that experience as their experience. Sacred, sacred, yeah. Yes, it's sacred. And so I just had uh, about one month ago, I had a hundred people from NAACP that we did together. 60 of them were university students. And um, because they were sponsored um, by some white people, um, of course they wanted to go on the tour, but my condition was they can't go on the same tour that I'm doing. Um, We have other tour guides there that will give a meaningful tour and they should have that tour. But my tour is for our people and that's who I cater to. Um, If there's a debriefing session, they can be debriefed. But this experience is a sacred experience and they understand because they know what they hold sacred to themselves that we can't participate in, you know, whether we know it or not. And we have sacred things and this is one of them that they cannot participate in with us, especially this type of tour with another assignment that you went through to deal with. That's another thing. So the same thing with this group that I mentioned earlier, the 350 who are here right now, they didn't have many, but there's at least about 10 educators, you know, Um, white Americans who are with them. And we had to do the same thing, separate them from the experience. You know, they had the experience and they should have it because we suffer more from white ignorance than we do from our own ignorance. And it's Europeans' ignorance of us that breeds that prejudice and that inferiority complex on our, uh, on their superiority complex on their part is through their ignorance. They don't know us. We were renamed in history. 
Mm. Um, our names are taken away. Uh, then they, they know the Negro. The Negro is their product that they manufactured. We have our African retention trade. They manufactured Negro. That's not who we are. That's who they know. That's who they want us to be. They've never taken the time to know us. But we knew every aspect of them because we had to live under them. So we had to learn that. I use the expression, we would hand the slave master a handkerchief before he sneezed. Because we had to anticipate every movement he made. We had to know what he was going to do before he knew he was going to do it. So we had to learn of them. We had to know them. We had to, to anticipate them to even survive. They only knew the face that we showed them and what they thought they had made out of us. So in our best moments mm -hmm. with schizophrenic, we show them the face that they, we think they want to see or we want to show them. If they make it look like they were successful in who they remade us into. But there's us that they don't know and they've never known. So they need to be enlightened without us wasting too much time on that. Because one of the reasons why I'm in Africa, I said, I spent 40 years of my life in America and um, my great great grandfather slave for America and he was never respected as a human being. My grandfather sharecropped for America, he was never respected as a human being and as a man. My father worked all of his life in dignity and America retired, never respected as a man. I'm not willing to slave, sharecrop, nor give all of my life to America. So what would be my expectation of them accepting me? So I'm not looking for the acceptance of white America to accept me. I'm looking to invest my energy in repairing all people, whether mm -hmm. it's in America or whether it's in Africa. My attention, my focus is on my people. Mm. Well, can I just jump in real quick, my son, and say, Imagine they don't know us and we don't know us either. Yes. It's, so, it, it's, it's such a heavy uh, load to carry when you do know, yes. when you do know, yes. like after you've been educated and you've touched the soil and you've had the experience, then you watch the world happening and you realize why our young brothers are killing one another because they don't know. Absolutely. They've not been they exposed to where we come from. And, it, you know, for me as a leader, it is very, very heavy. I think it got heavier yeah. after coming yeah. back, you know, from the continent. So I just yeah. want to say that. I, and I guess we could transition. Yeah, right. we, we should transition to our topic, because I think this is right on. All right. <laughs> we were yes. talking before you came on about um, the woman king. And I mentioned to you how mm -hmm. incredible this film is. Um, and one of the things that has become a topic of discussion online is people wanting to boycott. And, and this is led by black folks. Uh, people wanting to boycott the woman king because they say two different things. One is that the history of the Dahomey tribe is not being represented properly in two different ways. They some say that women are being romanticized in the film as though this group they didn't want to kill and enslave Africans. And so they, you know, presented the king with the opportunity to sell palm oil. And that's not the truth. The truth is that the Dahomey women were just as ruthless as the men. And they weren't, you know, they weren't like these good moral people who, you know, wanted to see change. So that's one side of it. The other side is. Uh, people saying that because they know or have read or have heard that the Dahomey uh, tribe was engaged in the slave trade, 
that they don't feel we should be celebrating that particular, you know, group of people in a movie like this. But also we they wanted to some of these same people and others wanted to boycott Harriet, the movie about Harriet Tubman. And it appears to me that every time we have especially dark skinned black women as the center character where the story is about what black women did um, and the role that they played in terms of fighting for us or whatever role um, and powerful roles, that there is always a demand for boycott. And the question we asked here today, is it sabotage or is it genuine critique? We don't always know, right? And, and so just wanted to get your thoughts on sabotage or critique and what do you think? Because, my, and I'll say this and then let you respond. I don't believe that we should watch any film and take it as the full history. I think we have a responsibility to do research after, you know, we we watch a film. So what's your thoughts on that? Well, thank you for, you know, um, allowing me to have a chance to weigh in on that. And um, let me first say that um, my perspective is not coming from having viewed the film, but I'm familiar with the dialogue and um, what happens you know, when we try to promote ourselves in any positive light, and especially for our women, Mm -hmm. and especially for our women who don't come in the stereotypical um, features of what has been defined as beauty, you know, in America. Mm -hmm. And so when you raise those points, you know, it brings to me the age old arguments of never giving our women um, black women, women of African ancestry with the features of Africans and, and the non-stereotypical form and non-acceptable form that America or the West has been used to presenting, that they don't get that without a struggle. We still struggle. Now, all of us know Hollywood in America. If you're not grown up in America, you know, or in the West, then maybe you can say you don't know the intentions, you know, and the motives of Hollywood. Hollywood, you know, is about making profit. You know, they separate films sometimes as documentaries. But when we have a drama, full drama film, they have to put in every drama pieces in the film that don't necessarily meet the criteria of all the historical um, accounts by detail. So they have to put something in it that makes it worth being called a drama. That having been said, um, we can't tell the story of Africa um, you know, without it having multiple sides. Most times we say two sides, but the story of Africa is so complex, we can't even say that it has two sides. So if we decide now to bring about um, with some dignity, and that's where the problem comes in, to bring about with some dignity, our narrative and our truth out of whatever segment of history that we choose to tell it from, is no different in our everyday life when we share experiences Everyday life and every day that we live and we make an account for that day's activities, there's a positive way of sharing what we've lived, the experience of that life today. And there's a negative way. There's a there's a there's a diplomatic way we say with words we can say something and there's an undignified way that we can say something. So I would say with critique, nothing wrong with, you know, critique. We should always be critiquing ourselves. We are people who always critiques ourselves, but we shouldn't be apologizing for celebrating ourselves. We shouldn't be apologizing 
for glorifying ourselves, as long as it's not totally a total distortion. Um, white folks have built up their self-esteem for years, but we don't call it self-esteem movies. We don't call it self-esteem Hollywood. Mm. All the stretching of the imagination and the stretching of the facts, they stretch the facts outside of facts to become outright lies, not even contradictions. Mm. And we enjoy it. We support those movies. <laughs> we finance those movies. We help break box office um, records every weekend and every time any one of them have a debut. So anytime something that comes along that looks like it might empower um, people of African ancestry, black folks, you know, to make us feel good, to make us feel um, um, uh, with a high sense of self-esteem. And these, I'm not talking about feel good movies. I'm talking about movies that touch the content of our history that we walk away with feeling good. You know, I don't even like the fact that um, they call the movies that came through in the 70s black, um, black exploitation, you know, exploitation movies, you know, because we were so happy in that generation um, just to see the black men get together in the hood and out think and outsmart white folks. We just was <laughs> glad that at the end of the matter, we got over on the mafia. You know, now they, they leave it, you know, in a post, you know, a humorous way. Oh, these are black exploitation movies. To us, we were winning finally. To us, we didn't end up dying first. When I was a youngster, every hero we had in the movies, they had to die. Even mm. when Jim Brown was our greatest heroes on the football field, when he got his major movie, you know, in the Dirty Dozen, and um, he was in that movie. And then at the last moment, Jim Brown had to die. And it was like, oh, no, Jim Brown died. We always walked away with a bad feeling. So for us to tell stories and then to have some historical content, not just imaginatory historical content, but be put in some historical context, especially when it involves Africa today, um, and walk away with some good feeling, especially for our women. You know, they have not been sideliners. They have not just been behind men. In some cases, not just been beside men, but being in front of them. We shouldn't have to pay a price or a penalty for that, you know, and be overcritical. You know, Martin Luther King said uh, at the height of the movement, when he was being criticized for his methodologies and so much, he said, let us not be bogged down with the paralysis of analysis. Mm. You know, that we analyze things so deeply that we become paralyzed and rather than empowered from the inspiration of feeling good about ourselves. And we don't have to make apologies for feeling good about ourselves, feeling good about our images, um, feeling good about reconstructing ourselves who have destructively been dismembered and disembarred and disenfranchised from the dignity of just feeling good. Mm. That's the yeah. point. That is definitely the point. Yeah. Man. I think I think for me watching the movie, right, there was so much back and forth before I watched the movie and then watching the movie. I was empowered. Mm -hmm. you know, there was there was yes. that it was. You That's know, the key. You were yeah, empowered. I was empowered. They they try to say that it pitted men against women. And to me, it showed them working in unison. It showed them moving as one unit. It showed exactly which what each of us represent, right? Like women represent this sense of power and strength. And they, they represent a conscience to men sometimes that we don't our egos somehow sometimes take over and we move off our ego and pride. And it showed how a woman's her intellect and her emotion and her, you know, her, her level to reason with him softened that ego because he respected her so much and they respected each other 
and they were able to rule together to where she was deemed the, the woman king because she earned that and he had earned because he had his abilities and he was a strong and respected and he had levels of understanding he understood you know culture he understood the history and he was and he was like his father in that regards and people had respected him and these were two respected people that respected each other and were able to lead because of this mutual respect mm. you know and a lot of times you don't see that you see levels of hierarchy and see, it's important that again telling on see we have that balance in africa there's no king that can sit on the stool in Africa without him being chosen by a woman. That's what our queen mothers do. The final say-so after the kingmakers have chosen candidates and they've gone through screening, the final say-so is that queen mother who puts her finger on the one that will be king, the man that would be king. We have uh, history throughout Africa and various cultures about the role that our women played, even as queens being king. Hepshetsu. She was the queen, but she ruled as a king. The Candlestone queens of Ethiopia, you know the power that they had. Queen Makeda, Bokus Makeda, that we know as Queen of Sheba. We know the power that they had and how they ruled their kingdoms as kings, but they were queens. And so we had queen that balance. Ya, queen Ya Asentewa. I'll never, ever, ever will forget that sister in the story. Absolutely. Mm. That lives, that reigns supreme here in Ghana. That's a part of our living legacy. Every Ghanaian child knows Nana, uh, Queen Yasantiwa and what she did when the men were um, depressed and, de and depleted in their spirit because their king had been captured and imprisoned and put in the Elmina um, Castle dungeon and locked up. And she went and fired up all the men. If y'all will not get your act together, then I'll lead us into battle and I'll recover our king. And I'll, I'll, I'll take on the British. And these stories live. And they, we have multiple stories like that. And we need to re revive more of them. And we, we have living history that we don't need to use imagination to come up with superheroes. We are real superheroes. You know, I mean... I mean, look, contemporarily, we never have to make no Rocky because there was a Muhammad Ali. There was a Joe Lewis. There was a Jack Johnson. We didn't need a, a Hollywood to make up a Rocky. You know, we go through all the episodes of our history. We have really what you call superheroes. And that's not talking about the leaders and the narrative that we're now digging up. I was telling people the other day, we can't use a shovel to dig up our history. We need an excavator. They buried our history so deep. And they, they buried and put rocks on it, cement blocks on it. So we need excavators to break up the fallow ground. Then we got to go deep and deep and deep to go down where they buried up our history and well, smuggle it up. up it's the their lives that have prevailed. So they can't exaggerate that enough. I mean, I know I'm, I know the history, you know, there, and I know that there was a lot of things that are not nice telling. But what is more of a feel good culture than American history? Oh, right. Right. Everything we learn. Everything Critical race theory is what? Yeah. They Critical don't race theory is that they don't want their children to feel depressed. Exactly. They don't even want With you to truth. know that history. They don't, I mean, they don't even want you to know that slavery existed. They don't want you to talk crit critical race theory. I mean, they went through a whole six months of finding yeah. ways to change the curriculum in colleges and forcing, you know, school districts not to talk about enslavement at all. But listen, you talked about digging up the history and I know you got to go. And at some point we got to end the show, but it's just so good. But yeah. we knew that. So we left a lot of space. Um, for us to be able to talk with you and get really deep. But let's get to yeah. 
the, 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 the other topic that is all over the news, and I see a lot of Black people who are either trying to figure out why were folks so upset about the coverage of the Queen passing, Queen Elizabeth Third, right? Um, and then there are some people are like, well, why y'all so upset about that? You know, because they don't know. They have they don't know. And then there were people who were super duper angry about it. And I'm not sure that they all understood the history either. Rather, you know, some people just have heard, oh, the queen was a part of an empire that did some bad things to African people. And I, but I listened to a lot of the critique and I could tell that even the super duper angry people, not all of them, of course, mm -hmm. really didn't understand the depth of the history. Right. Absolutely. And and, Absolutely. and 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 of course, there. I don't want to be disrespectful to those who do know and they know very much so about so. what took place and they've studied. But one thing that came up and I you know I want you to just give us break it down. We don't even have to talk. But there was mm -hmm. one thing that came up where people kept talking about her crown and the diamonds mm -hmm. in the crown. Um, and they were saying now it's time for the diamonds to be returned to where they came from. And I realized yeah. that I don't even know the history of that. So why don't you talk to us about and, and, and I don't think we can let the Portuguese off the hook, especially because no in the woman king, the Portuguese are mentioned. They are the ones that are actually there for, uh, you know, trading of, of humans. Yes. So let's get, get give it to us, Rabbi. Well, yes, I'm glad that you did bring that up because it is the current debate at the moment. And I think that there's a reason why um, today, let's take currencies, that the strongest paper in the world right now that we call money is the British pound. And you say, why is that so? How can that paper be more valuable than all the other paper, more valuable than the dollar, more valuable than the euro? What makes that pound, you know, um, so powerful? and world exchange and currency. And the answer is entwined there because the British, they presided over the largest imperialistic exploitation of, of, of the developing world in any other empire and longer. They perfected um, the slave trade and colonialism. Of course, you see the French, you know, trying to, uh, the French, you know, rivaling them in Africa, but nobody has um, presided over the most brutal, imperialistic, exploitative government in the world than what we know as Great Britain. And mm. the queen represented the head of that. She was the head of that. Not one single um, petition towards mm. reparations, reconciliation was ever addressed in a formal manner. Mm. They were all ignored. We see that there was never ever any granting of independence by the British crown without serious atrocities being committed to maintain those colonies before those colonies won their emancipation and independence by struggle. Even though Ghana was not an armed struggle, it was still a struggle. And that struggle was only won because of an earlier agreement that was made with the Aboriginal People's Protection Right, where Ghana established way before this queen came to the throne, that she was the Aboriginal people there and the land ultimately belonged to the original people who were there. So even though the English colonized it, the land never belonged to them. But outside of that, 
when we start talking about the atrocities that took place in South Africa, where the stone that she wore in her crown came from, and in places that got to be known as Zimbabwe, who were earlier Rhodesia, um, the, the pronunciations of Ian Smith, who was um, originally an Englishman, the protection they got from the English, the demonization of Robert Mugabe, um, because England did not stand behind its promise to compensate its farmers for the land that they had stolen from the Zimbabweans and had promised, and the Zimbabwean Robert Mugabe um, got them to, um, was um, led a movement to take that land back. And the British promised to compensate them and pay them reparations. Can you imagine? But nonetheless, British, the British made that comment and they didn't do it. Rather what they did, rather than pay, fulfill their promise and fulfill their word, which is all happening under the, the queen that just passed. They rather went on a campaign to demonize Robert Mugabe. And so, although Tony Blair and Bush engaged in pronouncing um, to the whole world that if Robert Mugabe didn't give in to the demands of the white farmers, that they would break his economy and they would turn his people against him. They had the nerve to even advertise what they would do to destabilize his country rather than to address the situation that was at hand. And they went along and demonized Mugabe. You had black people, even black leaders saying, Mugabe is too old, he's an old man. Why don't he step down from office? Mugabe's messed up the economy. Mugabe has destroyed the country. They never ever talked about the actions of the British crown. They never talked about the actions of the British politicians who forecast that and did that to protect their illegal migrants who migrated to Southern Africa years ago and illegally occupied that land, committed so many atrocities that we cannot come up with the numbers and the figures of the African lives who were brutalized, who were murdered, who were disenfranchised, who lost their mind and went insane. And that crosses the, that crosses the borders of um, Rhodesia or Zimbabwe and is in all of Southern Africa. And not just Southern Africa. Look at the situation that we have that the British crown um, was um, a part of. We have Ghana. We have Nigeria. We have Gambia. We have Egypt. We have Jamaica, Falkland Islands. We have India. All of these were under the crown uh, of England. And all of these were tributaries to England, not tributaries and allowed to operate in their own dignity and their own economies and pay taxes, but literally were enslaved and literally were brutalized, brutalized to enrich the British crown. So it is only those people, like I said, who have not come to grips with the history of England and um, the how they have maintained their crown and how they had maintained their position, even though they've lost a lot of ground today, that would speak by virtue of them having been programmed, or I would even use terms like brainwashed, to where they become insensitive to the insensitivity of how the British got to be who they are. How can someone who does not have one single gold mine have the largest reserve of gold in the world? Mm. How can someone who doesn't have one single diamond mine have so many diamonds, not just in the crown, but in storage that backs up the paper that is used for currency. So what we need to do is become more informed about what was the result of all of this exploitation. What is in the details of why people who are calling for reparations are calling for reparations? Let's put these things in perspective. How did this small little island all the way in the northern hemisphere um, become as rich as it has? How do so many of us speak the English language over our own language? Was it by choice that we didn't want to speak our language? 
what was the process that caused us to be English speaking nations. And then we're only cutting on the edge. We're only on the cusp of the matter of what that digging would open up if we were to really dig and go into that history. So we even have the fact that uh, most recently in the last two years, the same governments and crowns that call for Africans of the Caribbean and Africans and other um, pe um, people, uh, melanated people to come from other parts of the world to help rebuild England after World War II because they had lost so many men and women in the war, they needed help. And then all of a sudden, after they find themselves back up on their feet two to three years ago, they call these same population undocumented people and unwanted people in England and want to send them back to the lands of where they originated from, showing that the insensitivity has not matured underneath is the same white privilege that they have introduced to the world as white supremacy that the English became dominant and masters of and supreme of. So in that respect, by the time the English came along with the uh, involved in the slave trade, they actually mastered it like nobody else before them had. Um, others who were, were abandoning it, the English were coming into it. And so, um, as I said, we can use the show exclusively to talk about that for hours and would not even do anything but touch the uh, the tip of the iceberg in terms of what would be listed as the number of atrocities that took place. Now, because the English have a system where they separate um, the politics, the prime minister and the parliament from the crown, but believe me, we should not be deceived nothing happens except under the authority and with the approval and under the influence of the crown because that's what gives the cover it's the crown that gives the cover so it's a mastery of political science for us to be presented in a fashion that when it's convenient the, the whoever wears the crown king or queen can take the credit and when it's not convenient they can distance themselves from it but we should not be deceived by that mastery of political science by giving us that deception in their operations. Listen, I just, this is like a history class, man. You just, this is four years of college in the hour, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. That you've never learned, that you've never been taught. And, I, and that's why I say, you know, just the experience of what you gave us transformed my life, you know, for, for forever. Um, so even, even if we look at the American history, let's tie this in. We look at American history, um, the founding fathers of America that we uh, that were reconstructed into heroes. You know, let's look at how they were founded. If we look at the language of the Declaration of Independence, you know, the white Americans who were invested in separating themselves from England, they wrote in there that the king of England, George, was a despot, that he was a tyrant. They had to justify their reasons for wanting to separate because they said it's no small thing when a nation of people wants to separate themselves from a sovereign power. So they had to justify their reasons for wanting to separate from England. And the reasons that they justified started with the tyranny of the leadership and of the crown of England. That's in the document. So what was in the historical annals of time that showed that 
they ever changed their character that we would not suspect them to be exactly who their own children said they were when they claimed their independence. And what they did was they learned that if my mother and my father are thieves and we're doing all this hard work in the foreign land and they're treating us like strangers and they're treating us like stepchildren, then why are we robbing somebody else's land to pay them taxes? If we're going to be thieves, let us steal for ourselves. So they stole the American territory and refused to give the spoil to their parents and rather established their own white nation and kept those um and kept those spoils for themselves that's the foundation of america yes sir yes wow. sir you broke it down no i just before we go i just want to touch on this because there's this whole thing and you know and we we we, we never ignore it. we always acknowledge that there was africans trading other africans there were africans who were Absolutely. in the slave trade that contributed to the slave trade. But I want you to touch on and give the history of that and, and break it down and explain it. In Absolutely. The reason, the reason why we have Iraqis in America is because Iraqis were collaborating against Iraq in the Iraqi war. The reason why you have Afghanistanians being, you know, brought into America right now and commercials on TV about how we should open our arms to them because they were friends to us in Afghanistan is because they were fighting and trading against their own people. They were Jewish people who collaborated in the Holocaust. Nobody mentions that. No other exploited people, um, suffering people have ever had to take the double blame of being the cause and the reason for their own exploitation. They were collaborators, but the collaborators were so small in number that they wouldn't even constitute double-digit um, percentage points. Most Africans were victimized or in the dark of what those few collaborators were doing to help collaborate with the Arabs or the Europeans and selling other Africans. It wasn't a matter of, you know, African, whole African populations collaborating to sell their brothers and sisters. As I said, they were collaborators, just like we still got collaborators in the Black community today, you know, that sell out the Black people today. But that doesn't say all black people are sellouts. We've, that's never changed in history. What we must do and be successful in doing is dissecting these stories and these narratives and putting them in proper perspective. So they're not sold to us as a wholesale sale, that that is the narrative. They sold that to us for centuries. Well, your own people sold you into captivity. Well, your own people are responsible for you in slavery. But as I give you contemporary and historical context, they, America, um, they, every time they had a campaign with a different um, Native American ethnic group, they had other Native Americans from another ethnic group that worked as their spies, that worked as their interpreters. But nonetheless, they would no Native American would accept the narrative to say that their own people um, sold America to the white man or gave America over to the white man. So African people needed to reject that narrative. Not that we reject the truth that is in it and the percentages that were involved, but put it in proper perspective and not allow that to be the dominant narrative whereby we tell that story. Who were the benefactors of that then? And who are the benefactors of that today? Who were the victims of that then? And who are the victims of that today? And then we will come up with the proper um, account for who's responsible. Well, that is, that's, that's the mic that's drop. It. Drop that's the mic. It. That's it, you know, and I think and I think one of the concerns is that the dialogue around Africans um, participation in the, the slave trade will somehow diminish the call for reparations. And so it's important yeah. that we talk about what you said, who benefited from it yeah. then, and who continues to benefit from it now. Uh, and also Absolutely. to and also to understand for us 
even for our people to understand that there was a small group of individuals engaged in that activity. But once Absolutely. the Europeans came and oh, oh, you have to talk about this and then we're gone. I promise, because I know the production team thinks we, we're out of our minds. But you have to talk about the difference in what happened and, and how uh, traded humans were treated under African the under under the African slave trade or the African trade of individuals versus when Europeans got involved. Because you told us Absolutely. at the dungeons it was very distinctly different. Very distinctly different. First of all, um, as people like to throw in our face, that slavery is old as humanity or human society itself. And so there's the play on semantics. You know, if we want to use semantics, we can say any employee is a slave, but he's working under a master. It's just terminologies. But what was different in the North Atlantic slave trade and what happened when Europeans enslaved our ancestors is we use the term chattel slavery. Our humanity was taken away from us. And the African um, system of indentured servants um, and slaves, quote unquote, a person always had the opportunity and the privilege First of all, to be treated as a human being. Second of all, to be able to grow out of the status of being an employee, a slave, or a servant. That uh, based on your character, your intellect, and based on um, your own um, prowess, you can raise yourself out of that situation, even to the point of becoming a member of the family. We have African tradition that you is forbidden to even speak about a member of your family whose pedigree is not blood, but may have come from a parent or a grandparent that used to be a servant or started out in their relationship with the family as a servant. But because of their servitude and their dedication, they actually grafted into the family and become a family member in all equal parts. So that is a different kind of system um, of servantry. Um, or slavery, quote unquote, then you see in chattel slavery, when your name is taken away, your language is taken away, you the ability to practice your customs and your culture is taken away, your humanity is taken away, you are a perpetual slave, you can't be free, your children can't be free, um, the law doesn't recognize any rights as, as human rights, there was no place that any enslaved African that can take a white man to get justice. I When I left America, I left there and there had not been one single case where a white man had been convicted of raping a black woman, legally convicted, because the foundation didn't allow for us to bring any white person to court and win, because we had no rights as a human person to say that we were violated, because how can uh, a human being um, be, that somebody's not a human being be violated for human rights. Now we find ourselves in an era when we're coming into um, advocating for human rights, where we even have animals that have more rights than Africans and we've been struggling for 400 years to have human rights and you get a larger penalty for having dog fights and punishing dogs and um, not looking for missing cats than you do for missing looking for missing people of African ancestry. So the institution introduced by the West of chattel slavery um, was quite different, 180 degrees different from what we practice on the African continent and what a human being's chances were in life and in life cycle to redeeming himself out of that without the need for legislative law 
but the human compassion that exists within our systems, our families, our villages, and our communities allowed for human character to stand out and you to be able to be rewarded for your human character and the excellence of character and duty and service versus being perpetually punished because there's no way you can be free in a society. Can you imagine that even the idea that we were not allowed to refine, to refine our intelligence by being formally educated and being denied the right to reading and writing was a direct law to stop us from refining the best of our human senses and intelligence. Um, so these are crimes. These are crimes. And then we would have ourselves debating um, contemporary um, descendants of white people who say that affirmative action is um, illegal, um, but have no memory. They don't have any voice when it comes to how they've been given the advantages they've been given. Can you imagine an affirmative action being deemed as reverse racism because 10% of a population is being reserved for people who have been denied for 400 years and them claim them not saying nothing about the fact that that is when you turn it around, that 90% has been preserved for them. Rabbi, we've got to go. We got to go. We, 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 we can do a whole... Part two. Part two. <laughs> yes. We got to yes. do part two. Uh, we're going to watch this and re and think about and listen to the chatter online and figure out what are some other things we want to bring you back on to talk about. You are a gem that is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, not enough people know about you, but they will now because we're going to tell everybody anywhere up and down the coast, in and out yeah. that, you know, that folks have to know you and what you have been able to accomplish, what you're doing every single day, and how important you are to our culture. We thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me and giving this opportunity. And may you continue to be blessed in the work that you're doing. And may the ancestors continue to shield you and empower you and guide you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Please. Thank you, Rabbi. Take care. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Walbrook, we hear inspiring rags to riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, everyone. I am so excited. The Black Effect is live. This April 27th, the 2024 Black Effect Podcast Festival is headed to Atlanta's very own Pullman Yards. Last year was incredible, and this year will be even more thrilling, especially with Nissan coming back along for the ride. Nissan is returning with some empowering activations to support Black excellence in the STEAM fields. Have a podcast idea you've been eager to share with the culture? Well, Nissan is back with 
with a Pitch Your Podcast Lounge. You'll have the chance to record your podcast idea and have it shared with a Black Effect Podcast Network team. But that's not all. Nissan is taking the stage to spotlight some of the HBCU scholars from their own Thrill of Possibility Summit, Nissan's action-packed weekend of community building, mentorship, and professional development for HBCU scholars pursuing professions in STEAM. The Black Effect Podcast Festival is the event to be at. You won't want to miss this because no matter where life takes you, Nissan will dial up the thrill of your adventures. Visit blackeffect.com forward slash podcast festival for more details. AT&T connects an ode to podcast. Connect the alarm, change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Got my PrevNAR 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk. Get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't give Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Every time that I'm in the presence of the rabbi, I'm in awe. You know, his, his understanding of history and our culture is just unmatched, you know, and it's always just listen. You just like, I just sit here and just listen to him. It's like, I never used to like school, you know, school wasn't really my thing, but I could see me going to his class and just being intrigued and wanting to learn, you know, that's, that's what teaching looks like to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's great. He's great. I hope people will listen to the interview. I don't even have much more to say. Because, you know, and I know oftentimes if it's not, first of all, there's technical issues because he's in Africa. So the the, the it's slow. So there will be moments, I'm sure, in the midst of uh, this show where people will not necessarily be able to see him or they'll have to be, you know, there'll be some distortion. And I hope folks do that because the audio was clear as can be. And I hope people will not. Uh, stop watching it because we're so driven by visuals. And, you know, I hope people will listen, will download it for no other reason, our podcast, just to watch 
Rabbi uh, Cohen, Cohen, excuse me, um, because what he just offered to us, you can't buy because. And, that, and, that, and that's my I don't get it, man. I don't get how anybody has it tuned into this man have you have you they don't know have, they've never been well listen you got to get to it you got to get to ghana you got to look this man up he is like you said he is a gem and we are wasting our time i don't get how you ain't been to ghana i don't get how you haven't said Some that people man. can't afford it well, listen man hitchhike you know you got a buddy pat listen all that stuff no it doesn't work like listen that. people got, claim. they got 70 million dollars sneakers <laughs> they buying the new yeezys every time they come out they got the new bag that come out get to them slave dungeons man get to ghana understand your history sit down with this man he is a gem you know and I, I'm, I'm just honored to have been able to sit and be in his presence and actually in Ghana when you is it like he what he did here is amazing but when you in those dungeons and the way that he walks you through each step and explains to you what it is that our people were going through and he describes it it's like the, it's like one of the best movie narrators you'll ever see so make yeah, sure that you do that man He's and with that said man this is probably one of my favorite episodes and this should make us number one again. <laughs> podcast in the world, street politicians. If you have any questions, you have any ideas, something you want to hear about, let us know. We're here for you. Follow us at Street Politicians. I'm not going to always be right. Tamika D. Mallory's not going to always be wrong, but the rabbi's going to always be right. Pay attention to him. He's going to always be right. And we will both always, and I mean always, be authentic. Peace. Peace. Listen to Street Politicians on the Black Effect Network on iHeartRadio. And catch us every single Wednesday for the video version of Street Politicians on iWoman.tv. That's how we own it! AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Got my Prevnar 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us, wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic, and at higher risk, get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar 20. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.